2 Corinthians chapter 12. Starting in verse 11, Paul writes, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you. For nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now, for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent, our, and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before, before God in Christ. But we do all things, beloved, for your edification. For I fear, lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish and that I shall be found by you, such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, lest when I come again my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. Jesus, this is your word, and we accept it as such. We place ourselves under this inspired word of God. Uh, we ask that this food that you're, you're giving us, uh, this living word, this bread of life, would not just satiate us, but increase our appetite for your presence. Uh, you are coming, just as you've promised Jesus. You will return and take a pure bride unto yourself. We pray that we would be watchful, um, that the time spent this morning in this passage would stir up in us the desires for home, the desire for heaven, for a wedding, for reunification. Jesus, we thank you that you are with us, that you have not left us orphans. Um, but though you are with us now, in one sense, we anticipate that day when we see you face to face. With that hope in us, we ask that the result of purifying ourselves would be done just as, as John wrote. Bless your church today with this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul says, I'm coming back. But right there, let's just get to the bigger point. Jesus is coming back. Jesus will return to the earth and he will judge this world. Now, Paul just got done writing some of his most famous words. Last week, we looked at that beautiful statement from Jesus himself, my grace is sufficient for you. And before that, Paul had been boasting in a sort of reluctant, kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, sort of way in order to show that the wannabe apostles who were leading the Corinthians astray were in no way superior to Paul. Uh, so now in verse 11, he's, he's acknowledging that he has be become sort of foolish in boasting about his qualifications and experiences. But the thing is, he shouldn't have had to go there because the Corinthians themselves should have been the ones who commended him. 
They had all the evidence for his qualifications. He had proven himself to be on par with the other guys in every way, even though he didn't do business like they did. And the thing is, he should not have had to go into this two chapters long list of his own qualifications because the Corinthians had seen the signs and the wonders and miracles and suffering that Paul himself had done and had endured right there in Corinth. That, along with the other qualifications listed, his good character that they had observed, should have been enough for the church in Corinth to affirm the authenticity of his ministry. They should have been able to see Pastor Paul and been like, yeah, that's the real thing. These were proofs of his apostleship, demonstrating that he was equal to or even surpassing those who were challenging his authority and trying to lead his sheep into another pasture. Now, mentioning the the signs and wonders and mighty deeds in verse 12, these are the last things in a long list that Paul had had really started in chapter 11. Um, The the things he says, you've seen all of this. And you could say, you could start in chapter 11 with his, his sufferings and the things that he went through for the church. And at the very end, he's like, and also, yeah, there were miracles too. Um, And the thing he mentions here is sort of a summary of all of the troubles is perseverance. He says, you've seen my perseverance, perseverance through suffering and hardship, uh, abundant labors and toil for the gospel. There were numerous physical hardships, including beatings and imprisonments. Paul went through multiple shipwrecks and perilous journeys. Uh, There's constant danger from both his own countrymen and Gentiles. There were struggles with sleeplessness, hunger, and thirst. Paul ministered with a willingness to fast for the sake of the gospel and go without sleep. He endured cold and nakedness, daily concern for the believers, or daily concern and burden for all the churches. He burned with indignation, this righteous anger, when fellow believers are led astray. He mentions escapes from danger that confirmed God's protection for him. He also mentioned, kind of in passing, uh, a special visit to heaven. Uh, there's a, there were unwavering commitments you know, um, in Paul's life to boast in his weakness and his infirmities, relying on God's grace. And now, the undeniable evidence of miraculous signs, wonders, and deeds among the Corinthians that they had seen with themselves, like they were healed people in Corinth, that got healed through Paul's ministry. And now they're like, yeah, but really, like, it hurts sometimes, you know? Like, he grew it back from scratch, but like, it's, I mean, anyone, and he's saying, you saw me serve you. These are proofs of my apostleship. And if you expand, you know, Paul's ministry, if you expand your scope to include Paul's ministry as it's described in the rest of his letters to the Corinthians, you could include more, but we'll just keep it to this short list in chapter 11 and 12. The signs and wonders that Paul did in Corinth are the last in this long list, the last point that proves his ministry to be in every way superior to the false teachers. In verse 13, he says, For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches? Or in other words, what? how did I treat you more poorly than other churches? So there was an accusation apparently that like, well, Paul doesn't like us. He likes the Philippians better. It's like, yeah, because they're nice. Maybe that's why. But he says, you know, you, you weren't inferior except that I didn't charge you. He says, I wasn't burdensome to you. And then forgive me this wrong. There's definite sarcasm here. He's answering an objection from the Corinthians who would say apparently that they had been somehow mistreated by Paul and that Paul was not a legitimate authority over them because he had somehow treated them differently. And Paul's saying, if there's any way that I treated you differently, it's this. I didn't take a paycheck when I was your pastor. Well, if that's an offense, I'm really sorry 
that I didn't just give you a bill when I left. You wouldn't be able to afford me. That's right. That's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians right now. That's what he, This had become a big thing for Paul and the Corinthians. He had been really careful to support himself while in Corinth, both by collecting support from other churches out of town and also by going to work, nine to five, making tents. He had a job. It was important to him to not be, not ever be in a position where the Corinthians could say, well, you're just in it for the money. In contrast, the new teachers that were coming in to Corinth that they were all too happy to listen to were taking the Corinthians' money. They charged for their sermons, but they didn't really care for the Corinthians' souls. So Paul writes in verse 14, he says, Now for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. This is a beautiful appeal. He says, I don't want what you have. I want you. I'm coming to you, but I'm not going to take a cent. I'm not going to be burdensome to you. In other words, I'm going to pay my own way. You don't, need to, you don't need to find meals for me when I'm there. You don't need to find housing for me when I'm there. I'm going to come to you, but I'm not going to be a burden because I don't seek what you have. I want your hearts. I don't seek your possessions. I want your, your friendship. I want your love. Paul isn't the destination. The point isn't Corinth. The point isn't Paul. The point is what Paul preaches, Christ and Christ crucified. You know, we, we've tried to see Paul as kind of a window that we polish and look through. We want the light to be able to come through Paul. And Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, we see with Paul's attitude towards the church that he, he gives us a clear example of a love greater than his own. Um, Paul's attitude towards the church that he loves is a clear example of a, of a time when Paul is imitating his Savior. These could easily, you know, be words straight from Jesus to you. I don't seek your things. I seek you. He seeks you. Paul pursues the heart of this church, and he was taught to do this by Jesus himself. Now, I don't want to give you a false impression. When Jesus pursues your heart, which he does and is doing, and when he gets it, he takes everything else too. Okay, When you give him your heart, you'll give him all you have as well. But you must never think that God is greedy for material goods or somehow he wants your heart so that he then gets your stuff. He's not interested in the peripheral. He doesn't need your things. We can be reminded of Solomon's prayer when he dedicated the temple, right? Solomon's life work says, Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. You can apply that to every skill, every talent, every donation, everything you could possibly offer. You don't need this. It doesn't add anything to you, but I'm glad you're here. <laughs> and Solomon praised this, but he still built the temple. In the same way, if we worship you know, with our things, with our time, with our money, whatever, we can pray. You don't need anything. How much less are you going to need my contribution? You know this. It rings true. Which leads to the question, if he doesn't want what I have or even what I'm good at, because let's face it, he's better at it, what, what can, you know, whatever you can do, he can do better. You've got to know that. Then what does he want? He wants you. He wants your heart, and then for everything else to fall in line with that. Paul cared for the Corinthians as a father cared for his children. He cares for them as their father. He calls himself their father or refers to himself as the father of of the Corinthian church in, in many places. And he, he continues that vein um, when he, he gives this reason for not wanting to take the Corinthians' money. He says, for children ought not to lay it for the parents, but the parents for the children. 
is a principle that comes from Proverbs 13.22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. This isn't saying that children don't care, take care of their parents when that time comes. Jesus himself mentions that in the Gospels, talking about a child's duty to care for his, his parents and the Pharisees' weird loopholes for getting around that, right? Paul's statement in the in Proverbs statement, it's not conflicting with that. Paul's just saying, when someone leaves you an inheritance, uh, leaves an inheritance or writes a will, you leave the stuff to your kids that will outlast you, not your parents, that's just normal. That's the normal standard way of doing things. A parent builds wealth or an estate, maybe starts a business. They leave it to someone, not likely their own parents. That's not likely the way that happens. Um, it's not the way the world is set up. Paul considers himself the father to the Corinthians. He's not looking for them to leave him an inheritance. He's wanting to pour out his life and his work into building something that he can leave to future generations. Paul is a man about his father's business, just as Jesus told his parents, I must be about my father's business. Well, family businesses are generally passed down from generation to generation. You don't do it the other way around. You don't build a business and then hand it off to grandpa. You know, Paul, Paul is hoping that the church he is fathering would then father the next generation of Christians too. He's even mentioned that. He's saying, I want your ministry and my influence to expand even as I go further where the gospel hasn't been preached. He wants the Corinthian church to give birth to missionaries and pastors and, and more people to spread the gospel. That's every missionary's hope. That's every pastor's hope. It's every father's hope. Make something that outlasts me. And there's more of the same heart in verse 15. He says, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I'm loved. Remember when Paul was talking about giving and about how God loves a cheerful giver? And we talked about that a month ago, about how the reason God loves cheerful giving is because joy is a sign of love. When you love someone, you want to give to them. It makes you happy. You just want to do it. It makes you happy to be able to give to someone that you care about. When Paul says, I will very gladly spend for your souls or be spent for your souls, he's showing us this connection between cheerful giving and love. He says, I'm happy to be spent because I love you. Now, I like that he says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. We know there are more ways to give than just money. Sometimes we're the currency, right? He'll gladly spend his own money, of course, and not take any from the church he loves. But it's not just cash that he's being generous with. Time is far more valuable than money. When a man's energy is spent and his effort and his emotional and physical capital are spent, this is often far, a far greater gift than one that could be measured in dollars and cents. Paul will happily be spent like so much loose change in God's pocket for their souls. Even though the more he is spent and the more he loves, the less he's loved in return. That's what the verse says. This was one way you can really tell Paul's love was the real thing. Because anyone that was in it for the money or was in it for the acknowledgments or wanted you know, an item on their resume would have left Corinth a long time ago without making, planning on them this third visit. He's saying, you guys, you don't love me. So I'm going to come over <laughs> and I'll convince you to. <laughs> we'll work some things out. But the more I love you, the less I'm loved. The more he'd given the Corinthians, the more they despised him. 
Now, we do have more of Paul's writing to Corinth than to any other church, right? First and Second Corinthians, that's more, more just pen and ink spent for this church than the Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians or Thessalonians or the Romans or any of his friends, Timothy, Titus, Philemon. No, he writes to the Corinthians. He gives them more than anyone else and receives less in return. This is, you know, maybe painting with a broad brush. We know that not all the Corinthians despised Paul. His last letter moved many of them to tears and they were eager to reconcile. But there were still plenty, maybe even the majority of Corinthians, that were rejecting Paul. Paul could have become very bitter. He could have easily seen the disdain that the Corinthians had for him and then withheld further care and concern. And that's not what parents do. And Paul is their father. That's not what fathers do. He would gladly be spent for their souls, even though the more he loves, the less he is loved. It's not even a question in his mind. It's like, oh yeah, they're, they're never going to get it. But I'm going to keep loving them. That's what I'm going to do. Because that's what fathers do. Their attitude towards him hurts him deeply. But in no way minimizes his affection for his children. Or his willingness to sacrifice for their sakes. How great and how awesome is the love of God for us. That is hinted at in the love Paul had for the church. Paul's the shadow, Jesus is the substance. He's just the window letting the light in. Our God is a joyful, generous God. He's not resentful. He is not bitter. He gladly spends and is spent and was spent for your souls. Not because you loved him first. No, other way around. He loves you always, always, no matter how unloved he remains. We know he loves the unlovable. He also in that includes, that love includes the unloving. He loves us when we ignore him. He loves those who despise him. And there is joy of a divine magnitude and nature in the heart of God, in the cheerful giving of himself for the souls of such as these. Verse 17 says, But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you? By any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Do we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Now, there's evidently a little bit of sarcasm here or a rhetorical device. We shouldn't think of Paul as literally saying, I caught you by cunning. I tricked you into being Christians. Ha, ha, ha. No, he's rather putting their words in his mouth to show how ridiculous they sound when compared with the facts. The facts are, Paul had behaved in a very upfront way, with, with the utmost of transparency. His care had been evident. He didn't take advantage of them in any way. And so there's probably some Corinthians saying, yeah, you know, Paul, he's not the real thing. He doesn't really care for us. He was, in, he just, he, he was fooling us. He was, just, he was putting on a show. And Paul's like, yeah, sure, let's go with that. I tricked you. Now you're Christians. I hope, I'm sorry, I guess. I don't know. He, he's saying that, do you see how silly that sounds? Especially Considering chapter 11's, you know, shipwrecks, 40 stripes minus one, all that. Yeah, that was just, it was just a big ruse. Gotcha, didn't I? Ha! Never saw it coming. The facts are, Paul had been open and honest, and this was evident in the, with the other members of his ministry team. He had sent Titus and this other guy that they had accepted. Those visits had gone really well. Uh, the Corinthians were encouraged by Titus. Titus left feeling pretty optimistic about the whole thing. So Paul's saying, I'm... I'm with them. You know that, right? We're the same team. Okay, we've all got the same logos on our t-shirts. 
uh, we, we've got the same mission statement, we walk in the same spirit, we walk in the same steps, it would be difficult for those to have, have, have seen Paul and Titus as two parts of the same you know, team and then also accuse Paul of being crafty or tricking them in some way. It's like, that's not your experience. Verse 19 says, again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God and Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. This is the important thing for the trade. He's not trying to manipulate them or to take advantage of them. They don't have anything he wants. He's doing everything that he does to build them up. It's for their edification. This idea of building up makes me think of Paul's encouragement to the Colossians, right? Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 8. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Same goal for the Corinthians. This is the same thing Paul wants for the church in Corinth. And again, it's the hope of every missionary. It's the hope of every pastor, of every father. You work for another's growth. That's the way it's supposed to be. Paul has to remind the Corinthians of this because they've, they've got attachment issues. Uh, they've got emotional baggage and a skewed perspective left over from whatever kind of spiritual abuse they had endured. And this, this sort of thing manifests itself in a sort of skepticism, which questions goodwill. It doesn't believe in selfless love and won't receive a father's care. Such a person or church will bite the hand that feeds them and prefer a relationship with a, a, a distant person or even an abuser because at least that abuser will act in accordance with what the deceived one believes about people, that they're in it for themselves after all, and you can count on that. It's predictable. They're confirmed in their bias and able to think they stand on some sort of high ground when they accuse others who love them of having selfish interests. Paul is the one who loves well, loves truly, and is accused of deceit and abuse and a whole lot of other things. And so Paul assures them, hoping that they might hear him, when he says, we do all things, beloved, for your edification. Many people reject the true and living God in the same way that the Corinthians rejected Paul. Because this, this world hurts, and it's full of hurt people. People get hurt. They get angry. They get defensive. Someone says, Jesus loves you, and the unloving one puts up the defenses because they've been loved before and it didn't work out. And like Paul, writing letter after letter, pursuing the church that he loves, Jesus would speak to such a one as this, saying, I don't want your stuff. I want your heart. I'm not in it to trick you. I'm not here to manipulate you. I'm building you up. God says, everything I do, I do to build you up. He's the one who works all things out for good for those who love him. He is the one who makes all things beautiful in its time and who has promised to fill all things, including the emptiness of the human heart. Paul loved the church, and we see it here, but the Lord loves infinitely more. Paul's love for the church is expressed in the last verses by his concern, not for their treatment of him. He's not worried that he's going to go there and they're going to be mean. He's worried that he's going to go and see the condition of their souls and not like what he sees. He's afraid that he's going to visit them and find them in sin, and they'll be disappointed. He'll be disappointed by their lack of maturity and their sinfulness. They'll be disappointed in Paul's attitude because he's not coming gently. He won't be speaking softly. I think he might be carrying a big stick. 
Read through to the end of the chapter, verse 20. It says, For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Now he's written letters of correction. He sent teachers like Titus to lead them to the truth. But now he's coming and he's afraid that these attitudes and heart issues will not have been worked out. He's afraid that they will still be walking in their besetting sins. Not in ignorance. They know better now. They've been corrected. They've been instructed. But if they're still engaging in these sins, the hardness of their heart is going to break Paul's. Now look at the things that he, he suspects, he fears, might still be going on in this church. Contentions, that's fights. People are still going to be fighting. Jealousies, in this case, would be envy, not the godly jealousy that's passionate about righteousness, but that shallow, immature jealousy of a person who feels slighted and offended and thinks that those other guys got a bigger slice of church than me and must exact vengeance. This, this kind of thing goes with the conceits later on in the list. It's the idea that you think you're better or more deserving than someone else, and therefore you deserve more attention or more respect or whatever. And that kind of thinking can only lead to outbursts of wrath. That sounds like a fun church to be a part of, huh? Woo. So, but don't worry, there's whisperings too. They're, they can be angry, selfish, and petty, loudly and quietly. Okay, sin at any volume. Um, outbursts of wrath and, and tumults. This make it sounds like there's all-out brawls going on in the church in Corinth, or at least Paul's afraid that's what's going to happen when he gets back into town and has to correct these issues. He's afraid of these things still going on. He says, lest when I come, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. Um, he's not afraid of being humble. You might read that word humble as humiliate. He's afraid that when he comes to Corinth, he's going to have reason to be embarrassed of his own children. That he'll show up wanting to be loving, kind, generous, and have fellowship with the church that he loves. And instead, he's going to be angry at the sin and humiliated by the failures before him. And he's afraid that instead of being joyful as the father was when he received the prodigal back into his house, that he's going to be sorrowful. He'll have reason to mourn for the many who have sinned and not repented. Now, you, you've noticed, because we've spelled it out, that there's part of this story that seems like another one. There are things about Paul that are also like the one who is greater than Paul. The Apostle Paul is telling the church, I'm coming to you again. Doesn't that sound like anyone else you know? Sunday school answers only, please. Jesus. Jesus is coming back. I started the sermon out with that greater truth. Jesus is coming back. Jesus, who will gladly spend, who has gladly been spent for your souls, is returning. And what's worth noting is that this kind of anxiety that Paul has, wondering what kind of state the Corinthians are going to be in when he arrives, it looks something like Something Jesus says in the Gospels, in Luke 18, verse 8, these are red letters spoken by Jesus himself. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? When Paul arrives in Corinth, will he find a faithful church? When Jesus returns to earth, will he find a faithful church? Paul is deeply concerned about whether or not there will be Christians in church who have sinned and not repented, who think they can just just continue in their sin without any awareness or care or concern of the holiness of God. 
This is a concern shared by the church that awaits for Christ. Those who have the hope of his return, 1 John says, they purify themselves. That's an act of repentance. We clean up our act. The sins Paul mentions, uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness, they're all sins to be repented of, that must be repented of in light of the fact of Christ's return. These words have been translated differently at different times, but all of these sins are sexual in nature. Um, one of the words for fornication is what Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. It's the same word that Paul uses here in Corinthians. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The will of God is your sanctification, your holiness, that you would become pure and holy. Paul's will for the Corinthians was their sanctification. He had sorrow in his heart, fear that when he returned to Corinth, there would be Christians who were engaging in the sinful behaviors of their past, that they would be unrepentant. Again, not in ignorance, but willfully, willfully thumbing their nose at a holy God. The mere possibility of this is breaking Paul's heart. Now we're following Paul's line of thinking in order to see the mind of Christ. And again, we're struck with the similarities of Paul's return and Christ's return. Jesus is coming back. Will he find faith in the earth? Now, with Paul, you see this bit of like hand-wringing and worry, and you shouldn't think like that about Jesus in heaven, right? You shouldn't consider Jesus scratching his head about anything at this point in time. Don't think that Jesus is anxious. He's not worried, but maybe we should be. Because I will say this, if you're, if you're a Christian engaging in ungodly behavior and you know it's wrong, you have every reason to be more afraid than you are. You should be afraid. If you're a Christian who's engaging in ungodly sexual behavior, you have reason to fear. You should be afraid. It's no coincidence that this chapter ends with these specific sins. Paul is concerned with two categories of sins, sin of division and sexual sins. If there are fights, contentions, backbitings in your life, if these things aren't, if things aren't right between you and another believer, you need to make that right because Jesus is returning. If you are actively engaging in sexual sin, you need to repent because Jesus is coming. Please note that it's not just people who have sinned that Paul's worried about. It's, it's not going to be people who have sinned that Paul is angry with upon his return. It's those who have sinned and not repented. Jesus is coming back. He desires a pure church. That doesn't mean a church full of people who have not sinned. That means a church with the heart of David and a man after God's own heart, the chief repenter who repents more than anyone else and says, I need to be made right. I'm repenting of my sin. Paul is aware of his ministry. His ministry in Corinth and elsewhere is to prepare a bride for God. And he's worried she won't be ready. Be ready. It's time to repent. It's time to shift your focus onto the things of God and on the return of Christ. Now, in this whole passage, we witness Paul's genuine pastor's heart, his father's heart, Whereas deep love for the Corinthians, it's unmistakable, but again, it's just a shadow of the one who loves you more. We see Paul's desire for the Corinthians' spiritual growth, and that desire is matched only by his fear that when he returns, he will find them still entangled in their old ways. There's this tension between love and discipline that aren't conflicting in any way. Paul's prayer, his tears, his longing for the Corinthians should inspire us 
to seek, <laughs> seek the repentance before the correction comes. Seek repentance, seek restoration, seek holiness. Know that as we uh, develop in our hearts this desire to see Christ, this anticipation of seeing him face to face, we will then purify ourselves. Knowing that this, this being tough on sin in your own life even is the best way to be watchful. This is the best way to faithfully anticipate the return of Christ. The best way for the Corinthians at this point to respond in receiving this letter would be to get ready for Paul's coming. What would that look like? I think it would look like more than just like putting out the welcome mat and sweeping. Because they know that Paul's not really caring about that. Paul's not wanting their stuff. He's wanting their hearts. And so they would know that their hearts needed to get right if Paul's coming was going to be a joyful experience. Jesus is coming. He doesn't want your stuff. He wants your hearts. So prepare your hearts to meet the groom. Be watchful. Be faithful in anticipating his return. Let's pray. Jesus, we await your return and pray, Maranatha. We pray that your church would be pure, that we would be holy, that we would care deeply for the things that you care about, and that we would be faithful in watching. We love you. We thank you for your faithfulness and generosity to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.